but we also want to be a brand that's inclusive towards different gender identities. And, and that's something that's quite hard to get right. And I'm by no way saying that we have gotten it right. Um, I'm just stating that we do have the intention of ensuring that everyone feels recognized and seen by the day brand, not just, you know, people that identify as like, cisgender women. We, we do want to create a space where all menstrual experiences can cohabit together. Hello and welcome to the Bossing It podcast. This series we'll be exploring real life stories of women on a mission to build big brands and fulfilled lives. Each guest will share the ups and downs of growing their business and get real about the challenges that life has thrown their way on the road to success. Each episode will offer a fresh outlook on life and business and you'll also get to hear top tips from these amazing founders that will inspire you on your own mission of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Connie Longdon-Jefferson, and today I'm joined by Valentina Milanova, the founder of Day. Day is a women's health research and development company on a mission to close the gender pain gap. They have an amazing range of innovative products, including CBD-infused tampons that tackle period pain effectively and sustainably. Born and raised in Bulgaria, Valentina moved to London in 2013 to study business, economics and law at the University of Buckingham. After considering careers in journalism and event planning, Valentina soon found herself drawn to the startup world, working first at Techstars and then as a venture associate for Founders Factory. However, in the background, she was beginning to work on her own idea for a company. Having experienced painful periods for most of her life and being overwhelmed by the lack of information available, Valentina was interested in building a brand that addressed both of these issues. After 200 pitches to investors, she managed to raise a huge 4.23 million in seed funding, and in 2018, Day was officially born. In this episode, we talk about the importance of education in the reproductive health space and find out what it takes to build a taboo-breaking business. We also discuss the challenges of growing a global community, and Valentina shares her top tips on creating a brand that stands out from the crowd. I really enjoyed chatting to Valentina about her journey. You're going to learn a lot from this conversation. Enjoy. Valentina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I've been a fan of yours for a long time now, but for anyone that hasn't heard of you or heard of Day, could you tell us a little bit about your story and how how you got here? Sure. I started Day in 2017. That's when I first had the idea for our original product, which is the world's only pain relieving tampon. And we, you know, in the last four or five years have grown to open our own factories, sell the products across Europe, the UK. We're now launching in the US as well. And importantly, we're expanding our product portfolio to address other needs um, that women and people with periods have when it comes to looking after their reproductive health care. The reason why I started Day is out of inspiration from, you know, personal female health challenges that I've gone through and from a realization that there simply isn't enough innovation in the female health space um, and, and there really needs to be targeted medical device innovation for women, uh, people with periods and just people with a female physiology um, so that we can get the care that we need and deserve. Yeah, there's such a disparity, I feel, in, you know, healthcare in general, like you said, for people that have periods or people that have vaginas or wombs, you know, that sort of physiology. We do feel like research and funding and innovation, we're just always like 
five steps behind where we would like to be and where, you know, our male counterparts are some way. Um, you mentioned that your personal experience is what kind of drove you to create day, which I think is such a common narrative in the femtech space. I think that's what we're hearing all the time. Yeah. But what were you doing professionally before you were doing this and how has that kind of helped you on this journey? Yeah, so I really wish I had a medical background, but I studied law and economics, which was really helpful as, you know, I was thinking about the fundamentals of setting up a business. But I very much had to teach myself everything from this is how you do clinical validation for a product. This is how you run a clinical trial. This is how you apply for regulatory approvals that I had to learn by myself, which I always like to highlight because I think too many people are intimidated to start a business because they feel they won't have sufficient knowledge. But in the times that we live in, every piece of information that you may need is available on the internet. And with enough commitment and ingenuity, you're definitely able to, to, to discover the information that you need in order to create the innovation that you believe in. Um, so that's, that's my background. wish I could say that it was biology or, or medicine, but it, it wasn't. No, but I think, like you said, I think that sometimes what, um, many founders find that like you get to a point in your business and you actually have, you know, the, the skills that you have picked up along the way, even though if you looked at them on a piece of paper, it wouldn't make sense how they necessarily transfer to what you're doing now. Like I'm sure when it comes to law, for example, like there's going to be lots of stuff that's really useful. And even just the skills of like studying things like economics is going to be really, really helpful. Um, did you always have an interest in reproductive health aside from your kind of uh, personal experience or was it driven by your experience and maybe I guess speaking to other people who you you learned shared the same experience as you I always had an interest in reproductive health and in identifying information that I needed by myself because I had my first period when I was quite young I was only nine years old mm -hmm. and at that time my parents were divorced so I wasn't living with my mother so I didn't have an immediate caretaker that I could go to and say hey mm -hmm. help me understand what's happening with uh, my body so I built this habit of relying on information that I could find by myself in research papers in biology textbooks um, yeah. so that I could manage you know the really painful periods that I had to begin with but then um, I unfortunately had other ovarian issues with ovarian cysts, um, which again, I had to learn how to navigate by myself. But this habit that I formed when I was quite young is what allowed me to then um, start day and think about, okay, let's read all of the research papers on female health in this particular area, whether it's endometriosis or PCOS. Um, and let's think about how that could be implemented into the day-to-day -day practice of actually looking after your reproductive system. I mean, that's incredible that like nine, 10 years old, you were taking that approach. So it's no surprise that you've ended up doing what you're doing. But I think it's, again, it's really common that anyone who, well, I think any experience of things like reproductive health periods, infertility, you know, they're not taught in schools, like they're not kind of spoken about really openly. So I think we do have to kind of go out there and find, you know, um, our own information, which I guess is great. But then when I'm on the internet, you can have so much misinformation as well. I feel like part of Day's brand identity is being really like educational as well as empowering through their products. Is that kind of based on your experience of not having the information to hand when you needed it? Exactly. Um, so yeah. you will have noticed we have a female health education blog called Vitos, where we publish free medical content on all kinds of topics. Um, so whether it's choosing the right form of contraception 
or looking after your symptoms when you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, we try and make the content as digestible and understandable as possible while always having it be vetted by a medical professional. And Vitals, our blog, was the first product that we ever launched as a company. So a year before we had the tampons, we had Vitals. And that's how we started building our community. And that's how we started providing value to our users, to our community, before we could offer them any physical products. Yeah, I think it's I think education is so key in this sort of stuff and, and I love that you're doing that as alongside developing your business. Um could you tell us a little bit about the products? Because they are so innovative. You know, we're not just talking I mean, there are some amazing, lots of amazing, and I know we'll talk about this later, you know, sustainable period products and female founded period products, which is amazing that we're moving away from just this one type fits all mass production of period care. But day is really unique in what you're doing in terms of relieving the pain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the the way that the company started was by addressing one of the main underaddressed issues in gynecological care today, which is namely period pain. The only real treatment that we have for period pain right now is ibuprofen and other anti-inflammatories, which first of all are not designed for the female physiology. Um, so they don't work on the female physiology as they do on the male physiology. And second of all, they come with a plethora of side effects and it's not recommended that you take them monthly. It even explicitly says not to take them monthly on the little leaflet that goes inside every box. So we were looking at different ways to administer alternative forms of pain relief and we found that the vaginal canal is actually quite highly saturated with endocannabinoid receptors, which meant that the vaginal canal, which is quite absorbent by itself, is also a really good place to deliver localized relief through cannabinoids, uh, which are processed by the endocannabinoid system. So just as we have a nervous system, a digestive system, our bodies also have an endocannabinoid system and we naturally produce endocannabinoids. Um, so that's how we came up with the idea for the CBD-infused tampon, which would deliver localized actually targeted relief to the area where you need it with minimal side effects. So one of the biggest outcomes of our work in post-market surveillance and in clinical validation for the CBD tampon is that we have clearly shown we have fewer side effects than traditional painkillers. And that's partially because we don't take the traditional route of administration through um, you know, the mouth and the digestive mm -hmm. tract. We just apply the painkiller locally where it can act without affecting other systems. Mm. I mean, it's absolutely incredible and fascinating. And, and I think it's something that we hadn't seen before on the market. Did you, and I know we're going to talk a lot about the kind of taboo around periods in general, but did you get a lot of pushback I guess A, from the market, but B, from consumers about having to kind of treat them, you know, CBD and like this, they're all very new conversations. So how did you get any pushback from consumers when you were trying to kind of get into the market and show them that this could be really beneficial for their health? Um, of course, and we always welcome pushback and we always welcome skepticism. In fact, I think there needs to be a lot more skepticism when it comes to female health uh, because it's, again, an area where traditionally we haven't had the products that we need. We haven't had safe products delivered to people with vaginas and people that need them. Um, so we always welcome skepticism when, when we're faced with it and we believe that novel medical devices should 
be faced with high levels of scrutiny and high levels of skepticism. And our approach is just to be prepared with answers for every skeptical question that we could get. So something that we get a lot is, you know, does the CBD tampon cause vaginal infections? Will it increase my risk of getting a UTI? Will it change my Mm. vaginal pH levels? Will it change my vaginal microbiome? Will it change my um, reproductive uh, system? Will it potentially lead to infertility? And those are very serious and good questions to ask. So our approach to answering them is to invest in clinical validation so that we have actual data that points to an answer on these questions. Um, And that's a standard that we would like to see in medical devices as a whole, but in period care and in cannabinoids in particular. So period care, especially in Europe, actually faces a really low bar of regulatory guidelines and regulatory approvals. And the same goes with cannabinoids. Um, Regulators are yet to catch up with the industry and they're yet to create actual guidelines for, okay, this is the level of purity that you should have in your cannabinoid product. This is the lab tests that you should do on every batch. Um, So our approach is to do a lot of clinical validation that directly answers the questions that our customers may have. And then to also work with regulators so that we can hopefully increase the standards in period care, increase the standards in cannabinoids um, and actually create guidelines for the industry to follow. The product itself is really stand out against a lot of things on the market. But when you were creating the brand of day, I think, you know, again, visually and tone of voice and your approach to period care is, again, very unique. Was that a conscious decision? And how did you go about creating the brand in the first place? Yeah, so creating the brand has been one of the most satisfying experiences that I've had a day. Um, All of my life, I wanted to work in the creative field. I wanted to be an artist since I was a child. I really loved drawing. But I come from quite a conservative family where that was not an acceptable life choice, being an artist. Um, So I was able to channel all of my pent-up creative energy into building the brand. And we decided to build it fully in-house we actually tried working with six different agencies, branding agencies, before making this decision. And in the end, we we brought it in-house because we wanted to build something truly differentiated. We didn't just want to be a replica of yet another direct-to-consumer period care brand or yet another direct-to-consumer e-commerce brand. And what happens frequently when you work with agencies is that they try and place you in this cookie-cutter model Mm. um, where all of the companies end up looking the same. Whereas we had these really clearly established values that we wanted to bring into the brand. We wanted to create you know, a feeling of positivity. We want to recognize how bad female healthcare has been until today, but we also want to focus on the fact that, you know, there is a bright future ahead. And and that's where the name day comes from, you know, bringing a new day in female health. And that's also where our main brand color comes from. We use burnt orange a lot, which signifies Mm -hmm. the sun and a new beginning. Um, So yeah, it's been an incredibly um, pleasant experience of building the brand in-house while a very challenging one. It's it's really hard, soul searching work to build a brand. Um, but I think when, when you do it right, it really pays off. A hundred percent. And you can see that. I didn't know that you, you know, were an artist when you were younger, but you can really see that with the visuals because it, it's so, they're beautiful. If everyone's not seen it, you know, everything that you do from your social media posts to your packaging, you have this quite intricate illustrations and beautiful fonts. And again, I think it's very gender neutral as well, which I think is is great. We, we see, I mean, I think it is changing now, but traditionally everything was really you know either pink or this or it was like 
pictures of women in white hot pants on their, you know, their bikes, like biking around with their period care. And you've really moved away from that. And I think you get this, the feeling of the sustainability, the kind of green aspect comes through. But yeah, I love that it's all about a new day for, for women's healthcare, which you're doing. We really wanted in, in the colors that we use, in the illustrations that we use, in the tone of voice, we always want to be really respectful towards the end customer's intelligence. I think a lot of the female focused brands right now, you know, they um, infantilize women in a lot of ways and there is a constant use of butterflies and, you know, just make it pink. Um, so we wanted to be very respectful of the end customer's intelligence, but we also want to be a brand that's inclusive towards different gender identities. And, and that's something that's quite hard to get right. And I'm by no way saying that we have gotten it right. Um, I'm just stating that we do have the intention of ensuring that everyone feels recognized and seen by the day brand, not just, mm. you know, people that identify as like cisgender women. We, we do want to create a space where all menstrual experiences can cohabit together. Yeah, that definitely comes through. And, and and would you say that's one of your big brand values is inclusivity? I think so. Um, it, it's a big debate right now, you know, societally. Um, mm. The way that traditional feminism and uh, transgender rights and... Yeah. Um, the rights of people with different gender identities can coexist. Um, and again, I'm not saying that we have the right answer. My hope is that we evolve a society to a point where we see that those two groups are not the enemy. In fact, they're working towards the same cause of you know, providing better gynecological care to everyone that needs it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, we, we um, frequently face a fair amount of scrutiny on our social media over the fact that we do use the word woman we do mm -hmm. use the word female health so we haven't banned those terms and we we don't intend to do so we use all terms interchangeably so assigned mm -hmm. female at birth people with periods menstruators and women e exactly in the attempt to build this cohesive space where everyone feels like they belong everyone feels recognized and we can all work towards our shared goal which is better gynecological care I think you're right. I think it, in the reproductive health space, it is a really important but difficult conversation that we're that we're having. And I think we all just have to try our best to be as inclusive as possible and be open to learning and open, like you said, to feedback and pushback and just keep evolving as the conversation evolves. Um, but yeah, I think that's really important. Um, what are the other, you know, like when you did that kind of soul searching and you did the kind of brand identity, what were the what were the other kind of big values that came through for you? Sustainability is obviously another really key value for, for us as a company, not just on a, on a brand level. We verbalize this value as leave an impact, not a trace. And the way that it's expressed in our day-to-day -day operations is in us investing heavily in material science innovation. Um, so we don't want to just say, hey, we believe in sustainability. We think brands should be more sustainable. We actually want to do the hard work of creating materials which are more sustainable, creating processes that are more sustainable. Some examples of the way that this has materialized so far is that we have our water-soluble wrappers, which uh, eliminate plastic waste from uh, period care. We have our sugarcane applicators, which remove petrol-derived plastics from period care. We're now working on experimenting with novel tampon materials so that we don't just use cotton, which is quite a water-intensive plant, but we also use hemp, which is a significantly more sustainable crop than cotton. 
Um, and then we also think about sustainability, not just in an environmental sense, but also in a people and processes sense. The way that we describe success for day is I would love for us to be you know, a, a company that lasts for hundreds of years. And I would love for the children of our current employees to still want to work a day because, mm. you know, we will still be relevant and we would still be addressing the societal um, and environmental causes that are important in the future. Mm. Um, and we want to build a culture that's sustainable as well. Um, yeah. So we, we, we want to build a team that feels happy and content. You spend the majority of your time at work. So if you're burnt out and unhappy at work, that's uh, a recipe for, for misery. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like having strong values can really help when you're trying to grow a community. So, you know, finding your people, finding your tribe who are passionate about inclusivity and sustainability and innovation and breaking taboos. Your community and the day community has really grown exponentially over the last year or so. Um, what's that journey been like of just kind of seeing more and more people come on board with your mission and your journey? So we think of our community as the co-creators of our products and the co-creators of our brand. Something that I'm not a fan of when it comes to the way that other people run their companies is I hate it when there's just like a group of people in a closed room that decide, okay, this is what a product for women should look like, or this is what the brand for menstruators should look like. And let's just then push it out to as many people as possible. What, what I think is a much more sustainable model is to at every step of your product development and your brand development process to include the final customer. So what mm. we do a day is, you know, the, the customer um, educates our choices around product design. Um, and that goes, you know, the tampon, the applicator, the packaging. Um, and the customer also educates, educates our choices around the way that we do our marketing and branding. So we have a group of our daybreakers, that's the name we use internally to refer to our community, who analyze our ads or they analyze our stance on different social topics that are important. And that's how we think about, you know, the process of actually recognizing the needs of your customers rather than just um, rather than just saying that you do. Yeah, I think, like you said, it's about it being an integral part of the journey rather than just, you know, numbers and on email subscriber list or, or followers and stuff which obviously is great you want to get as many eyes on your your product and your brand and, and as part of your community as possible but I guess it's about how you actually use that community to to better what you're doing and to make them feel really valued exactly and to make them feel included yeah definitely can you tell us a little bit about the the things that you have done in the last year or couple of years that have really helped you grow that community because it's it's really hard for people to do that now you know I think we're in a quite saturated uh world where we have lots of new businesses which is amazing and we have lots of uh noise and content to consume so what did you use to kind of cut through the noise and find the people that were were really wanting to engage with day yeah the, the, there's really one tactic that we use um and that's to provide value to the um to our community whether it's value through truly innovative products that work whether it's value through free educational content that's digestible whether it's value through events that's the one tactic that we have used across the board 
to ensure that we can keep growing our community and we stay relevant and we become relevant amongst different age groups, amongst different demographics. Um, so we do that with our blog Vitals, which provides really digestible information on female health. We have podcasts um, with um, doctors that demystify different topics around gynecological and menstrual health. Every Instagram post that we put up is designed to be educational. It's designed to pro provide value and utility. And the main reason why we have been able to grow our community has been because we have products that work, that are genuinely innovative and make sense. Yeah, I think that education piece is what really sets you apart and is something we desperately need in this space for, um, for many people. Um, when you started trying to grow, um, you know, as a startup, you know, people are starting from nothing and they don't know how to get their eyes and get the people in the room. I know that you tried or had various different experiences, some with influencers, some with TV appearances, um, obviously some with kind of advertising. What are the tactics that have worked and what are the tactics that have not worked for you as you've been trying to grow? Yeah, and this is a this is an ongoing challenge for us. Um, mm -hmm. So by by no means do we have the perfect recipe for for growth completely figured out. Um, there's three things that have consistently worked for us from a growth perspective. The first one is SEO discoverability again through our blog Vitals because there's so few brands, companies, publishers that want to talk about the quote unquote uncomfortable topics within female health, such as why is the color of my discharge brown or why, you know, have I been bleeding for 11 days? What is the right form of contraception for me? What are the downsides to an IUD? So those kinds of topics are not covered by a lot of publications, which means that when we write utility-focused content on these topics, we rank high on Google and people can discover us um, in this way. Another tactic that has consistently worked for us is our referrals program. And one of the things that every direct-to-consumer brand should have is a referrals program where we reward the members of our community through credit for inviting more people to discover these products and to benefit from them. And the third tactic that has consistently worked for us is our ambassador program. Uh, we use a software called Brand Ambassador, which I really recommend, which allows you to vet and onboard brand ambassadors who then do the evangelist work of spreading the word about your company, your products um, in a consistent way. What hasn't worked for us so far, um, Facebook ads, um, mm. you, you, you may know this, but a lot of female healthcare brands are banned from advertising on it's Facebook. It's so bad. You can't use certain words. You can't use yeah. certain imagery. Yeah, it's really difficult. So, so that has been consistently quite hard for us. Mm. Um, another thing that hasn't worked for us is working with influencers. We have worked mm. with influencers, big, small, micro-influencers. Um, it hasn't worked. I think um, the, the, the whole influencer setup is is really going to change and uh, mm. it, it needs to be rethought because um, people are a lot more skeptical now and they don't just you know accept a recommendation from someone just because they're they're famous or they have a lot of um, sure. followers on social media um, so those are the those are the things that have and haven't worked for us from a from a growth perspective it's really interesting, you know, when you're talking about ambassadors versus influencers, could you explain a little bit about what the difference of those are? Because I think sometimes they get kind of put into the same 
uh, mm. bucket and we kind of yeah. think a brand ambassador and influencer is the same thing but yeah could you tell us a little bit about the difference of those two and why you think one's worked and one hasn't well an influencer usually wants to be paid up front um, right. so say they have a 1500 pound fee per post whereas with the ambassador program um, you're actually paid per impact so every time you generate a sale for the brand you get x pounds mm-hmm that is the, the main difference. So as a result, the kind of people that are attracted to ambassador work versus influencer work are people that are more likely to be genuine fans yeah. of the company, of the product, rather than, than people who um, for whom this is a livelihood. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think you're right. I think the influencer space is changing I think, you know, the amount of money that can get thrown around with some sort of influencer deals is crazy. But like you said, I think the consumer is now becoming wiser to it. Um, Whereas I guess an ambassador program is like an amplified version of a referral scheme, essentially. So you have got real fans talking from the heart, like people can tell that there's something that they use and that they're really passionate about. And that I suppose as well, you can also make sure... I think whenever we're doing anything with influencers or ambassador, when you have such strong brand values, it's really important that they are aligned with your brand values. And I guess if you're doing ambassadors that you know are already kind of um, customers of yours, then that can be a really incredible way to amplify your message. Yeah, in an authentic way. Yeah, exactly. So you you talked about um, the fact that Facebook advertising just hasn't worked for you. Has any paid advertising really helped exponentially grow your community or has it really been about the organic growth and referrals and word of mouth it really has been about organic growth um we haven't yet found a reliable way to do paid advertising um and that's mostly because a lot of the um channels whether it's tiktok snapchat google Mm -hmm. youtube they ban you from Mm being able to speak about your products, being able to reach your audience. If you talk about female health, if you talk about CBD as well. CBD actually is placed in the same category as guns, drugs, wow. and violence. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy, isn't it? And do you, do you have issues with um, your organic social also getting kind of banned or 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 kind of getting told to take stuff down if you go into certain products, or is it more on the paid side? And no, it's just on the paid side. Wow. It's just on the paid side. We haven't um, had any issues with our organic content yet. Knock on wood. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just, it's just so shocking when you think about the kinds of stuff that can be advertised on Facebook and Instagram and the fact that, you know, a product like this, which is trying to help people, can't be. But, you know, extremist political views that they can definitely kind of get out there. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, the the thing that upsets me is that um, Viagra medication is freely sold on Facebook, Instagram, the internet in general. And, you know, there's lots of visual references about half erect penises, which Mm -hmm. are totally fine. But then the moment that you show underwear that's been stained by period blood, all of a sudden your content is banned. Yeah. That's the I thing know. that upsets me. I think we, we, we need to do more to ensure that there's actual gender parity yes. in the way that we advertise products for the different genders. A hundred percent. I remember I was working with an underwear brand and they had 
peaches like the fruit with like little underwear on it was just like a cute picture you know instead of having someone in underwear which again shouldn't be banned but and they, it was taken down for being sexual like sexual advertising and it's like it's yeah. crazy yeah it's a over sexualization of the female body how has you know you've obviously grown considerably you're, you're going to the US you know you're now like a global brand how has that your approach to community I guess, changed or not changed as you've scaled? And what are the challenges of nurturing like a really authentic community when it's kind of, you know, getting to such a global reach? The biggest challenge that we've had nurturing our community is in actually hiring a community team. So we've never really gotten that right. Um, And that's one main reason why we haven't been able to scale our community efforts is because you know it's still me doing Instagram lives and events, etc. Mm. Um, so that that's been the main challenge. It's really hard to find people that are as passionate about gynecological health as you know the, the existing day team is and as we yeah. want them to be. Um, so that has been our our main issue. And now, as we think about expanding to the US, you know, the first thing that we're thinking about is hiring a team out there. Um, mm. to to make sure that, you know, we have these exciting community initiatives that we have been doing in Europe scale across to the US as well. Yeah, I guess it is all about hiring the right people and finding the team that can, you know, yeah. uh, be ambassadors for you from an internal perspective and you know that are going to take the brand values that you've worked really hard to to cement within day yeah. and and kind of take them but I imagine as a founder that's always a little bit scary because you're used to it being you and it being your voice and your thoughts and I guess every time you hire someone you just have to make sure like are they completely aligned with what I'm what I'm trying to do here I I don't mind that it's more that I want to hire people that will build on top of you know my mm. original ideas and and thoughts but it's really yeah. hard to find people like that I'm, I'm not one of those founders that are like no this is mine don't touch yeah, yeah, it yeah um I, it, it's just I want to hire people that will genuinely build on top of what has been yeah. created already and will take it, you know, to, to an even more interesting direction. Yeah, and I guess challenge you sometimes, like the conversation we're having around inclusivity. It's like you can have really strong values, but then, you know, they're going to evolve over time. So you want someone that aligns with the original values, but also isn't afraid to kind of challenge and make suggestions. And like you said at the very start, you know, innovation is really a huge driver of what you're doing. So it, it it's clear that you would need people that are thinking innovatively who are going to keep kind of growing, growing that community. Um does your, you know, you, you, I know that you're launching in the US. Do have as you're kind of making those strategic business decisions, is it mm-hmm. we want to launch in this market, we need to grow a community there, or do you start to see a community kind of um, growing and think, wow, okay, this could be the next area that we go to? The latter. We always um, wait for a community to form organically first, and then we start looking after that community and providing resources and generating value and utility. Uh, but we, we as a, as a company, generally, um, prefer to have some initial traction, have some initial community before um, we, we go on and introduce a product to a geography. So when we were expanding to different countries in Europe, we started with Germany, France, Italy, um, and Spain, because those were the markets where we were seeing um, existing traction. We were seeing comments on social media of people saying, can, can we have your products available um, in our country as well. 
Um, and, and we've just constantly been hearing from people in the US that they would like access to their products. So now we're working on making them available to US customers as well. It must be so incredible to to know that you've got a, a customer base there like asking for the product. I guess when you first start out as a product-based business, you're kind of like nervous. Are people going to like it? Do people want this? Yeah. And then when now you're getting to the point where you have people in other countries saying, please, please send them over. And have you done like wait lists? I'm or still nervous. This... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but how does it I'm work with something nervous. like that? Do you do like a a wait list how do you keep if people are coming to you saying we want this product but then obviously it might take a long time to to get the product out there how do you keep that element of the community engaged we we do build the wait list and again we focus on creating value um so whether it's value through um content or value through educational newsletters currently we have about ten thousand people on the wait list in the u.s and we send them um, information every week from our blog that's digestible, easy to understand. It talks about the products, it talks about our values, it talks about gynae health more broadly. And that's how we keep people engaged as well as through the usual methods of uh, social media posts. Yeah, that must be the nerve wracking part of like you have all these people, but like, will they convert? And, you know, you're just really hoping that that they're still engaged by the time you get out there. But a really exciting time for you. Yeah, we, we've talked about the taboo around um, which there shouldn't be one, but there is still around things like periods, yeah. things like reproductive health. Um, and obviously with advertising and stuff that can throw up some problems, but do you think there's also, I feel like there's sometimes a benefit to, to having a product in a taboo area because you find the people that are really passionate about breaking down those stigmas and they become really passionate advocates for your brand and your mission. Is that something you've experienced? For sure. We were really grateful to our community for fighting the fight for better access to gynecological healthcare, but also to more inclusive conversations about mm. the realities of, you know, the, the struggle of, you know, having a period, having a uterus, having a vagina, the pain of it, um, just, you know, no, normalizing that and having these honest conversations. It's been incredible that we have a community that is willing to fight for that. Um, mm. Something that we care about a lot is for people to be honest when they're experiencing period pain. So a statistic from YouGov says that, which is a UK statistics body, says that 57% of women that experience period pain at work and have to take a day off as a result Mm -hmm. don't feel comfortable telling their manager that this is the real reason why they're taking a day off. Um, that's something that we want to change. We want to normalize conversations about period pain and the realities of menstruation in the office, in the workplace, everywhere. Um, something that I've started doing personally is what, if I ever have to use the, ba- the bathroom in a public space in a restaurant or I'm walking on the street and I have to go in and ask permission to use the restroom, I always say, oh, I need to change my tampon so that you, know, mm. you normalize these conversations in the same way that you'd be like, can I use a bathroom? I need to pee. Mm-hmm. I just want to normalize the reality around, yes, I'm on my period. There's something dirty or disgusting about that. Everyone has it every month. Um, yeah. Let's just talk about it more openly. Yeah, I think it's the, the the conversation around just the shame around periods is so unnecessary. Like it, it's this, but it's so it's, you know, it's all just 
fed through misogyny because it's something that you know exactly traditionally not traditionally but you know historically it seems as a just a female problem a female thing a female act and uh we don't want anything to do with it it doesn't belong in the public sphere whereas if you have like a headache or a cold like no one is like feeling embarrassed about talking about that and it's just so crazy that something that happens to half the population once a month is yeah. the secret act that we're yeah. like scurrying around trying to hide and it's just it's it's crazy did, um, I mean, have you? What's your investment journey been like? Have you had an external investment yet? Yeah, so we raised a seed round um, mm-hmm. of five million dollars uh, with funds in London and funds in San Francisco, and that has allowed us to build out the team, the brand, our production facilities, the clinical validation. That's what we have done so far from an investment perspective. How was it? I mean, whenever I speak to femtech founders, I think, um, again, a conversation that I hope in one day we won't be having, but it's still prevalent now, is the conversations that you're having with predominantly male investors about your product and getting them on board. What was your experience of that like? Uh, They're hilarious, these conversations frequently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's hard fundraising for, for gynecological health because investors like to relate to the problem that they're going to invest in. And it's hard to only use words or images in a slide deck to describe the experience of period pain or to describe the experience of a vaginal infection. Um, So fundraising for female health will always be hard until we have more women investors. So currently only 6% of the investment community is female, which is a really low number. Um, and when you when you get to the later stages of uh, fundraising, when you get to Series A, Series B, Series C, there's even fewer women decision makers. So I, I don't think the experience of female founders fundraising for gynecological health is going to change until we have more women investors. Did you see that that kind of that shame and that awkwardness that we just described of, you know, being in a restaurant and people getting awkward about you changing your tampon? Do you see that when you're in those meetings with those guys? and Or can you see them trying to get their head around the fact that this is a massive market and they need to get over it? <laughs> uh, you see a lot of people that are, you know, they can't wait to get you out the door. So they stop <laughs> feeling embarrassed. Yeah, you get that a lot for sure. Yeah, it's just so interesting. So before we go, I just want to ask you some of your top tips uh, around building community and building a brand. So if someone is starting a business right now and you know they are at zero be that followers email subscribers um, but they really want to grow an engaged community what would be your kind of best piece of advice to provide utility to provide something useful to your community um so think about whether it's you know is it content is it products is it um, access to specific thought leaders in your space think about how to provide value to your utility to your community and start there and what about if someone is, um, you know, I, I think maybe maybe it's going to be the same advice, but if someone is really trying to bootstrap their business, obviously, you know, once you've got your investment, I'm sure you, you could get some of the team members and you could build up, build up the team and build up the brand. But if someone is trying to do that, but they're, you know, a solopreneur at this point, what are the best things that you, maybe you did right at the start before you had a team around you? I always advise people to bootstrap for as long as possible. Because it allows you to really understand your business and understand what you want your business to be before you have the external pressure of a team and investors. Um, So the longer you can bootstrap your business for, the better, in my opinion. And finally, what is your top tip for ensuring that your brand stands out from the crowd? 
do the hard soul searching work of building the brand in-house. Don't work with an agency. It's it's rarely going to be differentiated if you work with an agency because they'll never have the buy-in that you as a founder will or that your marketing team who mm. work for you will. Um, they'll, they'll never understand what you want with the brand as, as well as you do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the soul searching part is so important because it's not just about yeah. picking a pretty color and a pretty font. It really has to kind of exactly be, become an extension of you as a person and you as a business. Mm -hmm. Valentina, thank you so much for your time. How thank can people you. find you, find Day, uh, buy your products, support you? Yeah, we are on your day with an E at the end, D-A-Y-E dot com. That's our website. And we use at midday for our handle for Twitter, um, Instagram and other social media. Brilliant. Valentina, thank you so much. Thank you, Connie. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bossing It. So that this podcast can be discovered by even more people, please do rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. You can find us online at Found Flourish and you can tweet us, DM us, get in touch with us however you'd like to let us know if you've got any questions about the topics we cover in this series or if you'd like to nominate your favourite entrepreneur to be our next guest. <laughs>